that you would just um, bless this time in your word. And Lord, we give you all the glory and honor, whether it's a, a project for medical missions in Cambodia, or whether it's making a meal for somebody, or praying for somebody, or whether getting them a cup of coffee or teaching the children. Lord, our desire is, is everything that we do here brings glory and honor to you. And Lord, that's what we want to continue to do. We want to continue to grow in your love and in your grace. Lord, we want to continue to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and knowledge of the Word of God. And so, Father, may that continue tonight as we just are still before you, open our ears to you, as we just read the Word of God, a portion of Scripture that gets so ignored in the church today. Lord, we know that there's application for us. And so help us to make that, Lord, so we can draw close to you and learn more of your goodness and faithfulness and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 24, Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning. Before the Lord continually, it shall be a statue forever in, in your generations. And he shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. So we open up chapter 24 of Leviticus. Of course, the whole theme of Leviticus is holiness. And God is describing to the priests what it is that holiness is. He's defining holiness, how they are to live in holiness, how they can minister before the Lord in holiness. And so the priests have been receiving instructions concerning those areas. And as we look at chapter 24, what we're going to see is the providing for the holy oil for the lampstands in verses 1 through 4 that we just read. Then the providing of the bread for the tabernacle. And then we're going to see the penalty for blasphemy against God. And as you divide up the three sections here in this chapter, you think it's kind of random. There isn't a whole lot of order. All of a sudden we're talking about the holy oil. All of a sudden we're talking about the holy bread. And then we're talking about the penalty for blaspheming God. And we'll see that here. But I think that there is order in this because God does everything decently and in order. But as we look at this, to carry the priest, for the the seven-branch golden menorah. Of course, as we saw in the book of Exodus, the seven-branch lampstand or or golden menorah was on the left-hand side as the priest would walk into the tabernacle and to the holy place. And as we studied the lampstand and all the furnishings of the tabernacle, of course, we, we looked at what it symbolized to the children of Israel. But we also saw what it symbolized according to Jesus, how it pointed to and illustrated and gave a picture of Jesus. And so it is uh, something that uh, we made uh, application to and talked about. So the lampstand, that seven-branch golden menorah, it had bowls on each of the seven branches, and it had uh, wicks that were floating in that. And the priests, as we saw here, they would take care of the lampstand. They would continually fill those bowls full of oils, and they would trim the wicks. And it was the only source of light that was in the holy place. And it would actually be very beautiful. You recall, as we went through the book of Exodus, the outside of the tabernacles made of animal skins, several layers of animal skins, but on the inside it would be those boards that would be overlaid with gold, and so that seven-branch menorah in that that room, the light reflecting off of the gold would be very impressive, wouldn't it? The only source of light that was there in the holy place, and then above was the, the curtain that was laid, the first layer, and there was the cherubims that were intricately woven there in, in, the, in the skins and in the curtains that were above 
love them. So it would be a very beautiful thing inwardly. And it was the priest again taking care of the lampstand. So we made application that, of course, the lampstand, being the light there in the holy place, it symbolized how the nation was to be a light to the other nations, the, the nation of Israel. They were a new nation coming out into the wilderness. And a lot of what we are seeing here in the book of Leviticus, and we'll continue to see as we move into Numbers and into Deuteronomy, that God is giving them his law. He is preparing them uh, here for when they go into the promised land. And he's given them how they are to run their nation, how they are to approach him through the sacrifices, of course. The feast that they were to celebrate, as we saw last week, that was symbolizing how they continue to abide in Christ, uh, how uh, they were to celebrate the goodness and provision of God through those feasts. But also we see that God is preparing them how they are to run their nation. And he is giving them these instructions and then, of course, the priestly ministry. And what it was to be was the light to the other nations of the goodness and the faithfulness and the reality of God, the, the provision of God, that truly that God is amongst the children of Israel, that they worship the true and the living God. And so that light was to be evident in the way that God was working through the people, the nation of Israel, and then how they were to be a witness to the other nations uh, on the faithfulness of God. Unfortunately, as you look at much of the history of the children of Israel, you see that they didn't do that, that they actually turned to other gods and they ended up going off into captivity as you read the Old Testament. And so it was to be a symbol of how the nation was to be a light to the other nations. It symbolizes how you and I as Christians, we are the light of the world, aren't we? And I pray for each one of us that are in this room that we would be a light shining in the darkness of the world in your workplace and in the schools and in your neighborhoods and with other family members, that they would see the light of Jesus Christ radiating from you, the reality of Jesus, as they see that you believe in in his word, that you are um, abiding in Christ, that that Christ-likeness is being evident in your life, that that they see something different about you, and, and it's light is what they're seeing. And in that as you go about, that light is shining brightly. But also, as we saw, that it, it symbolized that Christ, that he's the light of the world. And, of course, Jesus would stand up there in John chapter 8 and say and declare that I am the light of the world. And so here are the priests. They would fill those bowls up with oil. And oil in the Old Testament symbolizes what? It symbolizes the Holy Spirit. You and I are filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we have the Holy Spirit that continually is filling us, and, and Lord, fill me afresh of your Holy Spirit today that I may walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's working in me, that I can be a witness to others. And as the Holy Spirit is living in you and, and continually just filling your heart, as Jesus would say, come to me all who thirst, and, and if you thirst, drink of me, because out of your heart will flow torrents of living water, of course, speaking of the Holy Spirit. So that overflow of God's love and, and um, his uh, evidence of working in your life being shown as the Holy Spirit is flowing through you, and then you're going to be a light to a world that lives in darkness. And so the care of the lamp stands symbolizing uh, being the light of the world, how you and I, as New Testament priests, that we are to be a light in this dark world. In verse 5, the bread of the tabernacle, and you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephod shall be in each cake, and you shall set them in two rows, six in a row, and on pure gold table before the Lord. 
You shall put pure frankincense on each row, and that it may be on the bread for a memorial of an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. And so we see here that it is uh, the holy bread that was on the right-hand side opposite the seven-branch golden menorah. It was 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the priests would come in and they would change the bread every Sabbath. And then they would eat of the bread. And that eating of the bread, as we talked about in the meal offering, in, in the fellowship offering, that it symbolized that closeness with God, intimacy with God. In the ancient world, and even in our own culture, I think that whenever we eat with somebody, it does symbolize a closeness, a, a fellowship that has taken place, doesn't it? We have somebody over for dinner today, don't we? And the reason that we have dinner with them is not only just to eat, but to get to know them, to fellowship with them, to take some time out and to visit with them. Well, it was the same in, in that culture in the ancient time, even had uh, even stronger meaning of that. And that's why that the Pharisees were so upset with Jesus when he was eating with tax collectors and sinners and uh, because it had that symbolism. And so Jesus says in the book of Revelation, chapter, Three, that behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone uh, opens the door, I will come in and sup with him or dine with him. Speaking of that fellowship that will take place. And so you and I simply, we have to just open up the door to have fellowship, the door of our hearts. And the Lord is there continually knocking on our hearts, desiring to want to have closeness and fellowship and intimacy with us as we take and have fellowship with the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And so that's something for you and I to always remember. I pray that we never forget the Lord wants to spend time with you. And he desires for you to open up your heart to him daily in the fellowship and commune with him as you come to the bread of life, Jesus Christ. He says, anyone who comes and eats of me and drinks of me, you'll never hunger and thirst again as he proclaimed to be the bread of life that came from heaven. And, and he says that he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, they shall be filled. So that door of our hearts, we're the ones that are to open it to fellowship and have closeness with the Lord. And he desires that from us. Never forget that. Sometimes we can think, Lord, you must be just kind of tired of me or you don't think very much of me or, or whatever. Uh, our God wants to be close to us. He desires for us to come to him on a daily basis. And you see, in the meal offering, the fellowship offering, they were to eat of that offering, as we talked about, every single day. And the reason was is because if they didn't eat of it, it would become stale. And I don't want my fellowship and closeness to be stale with God. I want to have it be fresh every day as I come and fellowship with him, as I commune with him, as I pray to him, as I read his word. And that's how I stay close to the Lord. Now, as I told you, as we go through this chapter, we see the care of the lampstand symbolizing that we are to be the light of the world, filled with the Holy Spirit, as we are to take in the bread of life, just uh, being close to the Lord, fellowshipping with him. And in this third part, all of a sudden it comes into this penalty for blasphemy. But here's the thing. If we are filled with the Spirit of God, and as we are walking with him and abiding in him and being a light to the world, uh, the light of Jesus Christ in us, reflecting through us. And then as we are fellowshipping with the Lord, as we are communing with him, you know what? You're not going to be blaspheming God. You're not going to have a disrespect for God, are you? 
you're going to honor the Lord and you're going to be able to um, be one that, again, that is just going to be a testimony of the truthfulness and the goodness of God. But here we see that there was a problem that came up in the camp as we read in verse 10. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed and so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, and the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody, verse 12, that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And so we see this this part of the mixed multitude, the mixed multitude that went out with the children of Israel. We saw that they went with them in Exodus chapter 13 as the children of Israel went in orderly ranks. They went according to tribes. They would set up their camps in a very orderly fashion. We're going to see that when we open up the book of Numbers in just a couple weeks. But one of the things that we saw also mentioned in Exodus chapter 13 was this mixed multitude. Now, who were the mixed multitudes? The mixed multitudes was simply those who had intermarried with the Egyptians. Being in Egypt for 400 years, you had some of the Israelite women that married Egyptian men, such as the case here, and they had offsprings. And then you had vice versa. You had some of the Israelite men that married Egyptian women. And so those were the mixed multitudes that we're actually going to see that the mixed multitude became a problem when we go through the book of Numbers, but I'm getting ahead of myself, and we'll see that when we get there. So here is this 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 young man. He's the son of an Israelite woman, but his father was um, an Egyptian, and he's fighting one of the Israelites, and he curses the name of the Lord. He, he blasphemes the name of the Lord, and it was more than he just said a, a curse word. What was happening here is that he was cursing and blaspheming the nature and the character of God. So what they did is they took him and they brought him to Moses that they might know the mind of the Lord. Now you might recall that in chapter 20 of Leviticus, the law was given and in that law was the penalties of of breaking the law of God. And if you came along and blasphemed the nature and character of God, it was punishable by death. So why are they taking them to Moses here so that they may know the mind of the Lord? I think what they're doing is they're wondering, and the indication is going to be in the answer that the Lord gives to them, does this law apply to the mixed multitude? It applies to the children of Israel, but what happens if it comes to a stranger or a mixed multitude, one of them? Does the same thing apply to them? But there is a lesson in this for you and for me that I know that most of us know this. But it's very important for you and for me. Whenever we have any questions about any area of our lives or any circumstances that we are facing, that we know the mind of the Lord. That we go to the Lord, that we search his word, that we pray about it, that we seek him in the answer that he has for us. Because the Lord desires to direct you in all the circumstances and all your situations in every area of your life. And he gives you answers through the word of God. Sometimes there are specific situations where we need to seek counsel from brethren, godly counsel. We need to seek the Lord as he speaks to our hearts and and wanting to know the mind and the heart of God. You see, the Lord not only knows our hearts and he knows our minds more than we know our own hearts. But his desire is for us to know his mind and for to know his heart. We can't fully understand God. I know that. But he's given us of his word and his character and his nature that we may know him more. And oftentimes when we're facing 
particular and very specific circumstances and situations that maybe the Word of God doesn't spell out to us exactly what to do. I know for me it helps when I know the nature and the character of God. I know that the mind of the Lord declared through His Word, I believe that the Lord would have me go in this direction. And then the Holy Spirit guiding me and giving me a peace that rules in my heart. And and, and just that, that peace that is there as He does direct and guide me. Whenever I feel funny about something, or there's something questionable, I know as you go to the Lord and you feel, ah, I just don't know about this. And the Lord's cautioning you about something. He's giving you a warning about something. And I have found that that oftentimes when I don't know what to do, Lord, I'm not hearing right now, I'm not sure, I stay put or I don't move forward. But oftentimes the Lord will say, yes, this is where I want you to go in the direction that as you seek me and as I seek the Lord. And, and, and it becomes, I think, a little bit easier as we get to know him, the nature and character of God. So we want to know the mind of the Lord. That's what Moses does. And so verse 14, take outside the camp. As uh, Verse 13, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take outside the camp him who has cursed. Then all, let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. And then you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. And so we see the Lord says, yep, that that's what I want you to do. That's the, the mind of the Lord, to have him stoned. Whether he's of the children of Israel or whether he's a stranger among you, there's going to be no blasphemy and cursing the name of the Lord. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 17 again says that every word is to be established by two or three witnesses. And these witnesses were to lay their hands on this one who's going to be stoned. And then all the congregation was to be there for the, the stoning of this individual. Now, we can look at these verses and we can say, man, that's tough, isn't it? And that's, that's harsh punishment. But I think that as we look at this, that God didn't want this new nation to have there be this acceptance of a blasphemy or a blatant disrespect for God. And to have that grow from generation to generation to generation. And so he says there's not to be any of that. There is to be a respect and a reverence for me, for I am the Lord that we see over and over again written that the, the Lord says to the children of Israel. You know, what we have seen in our own society and in our own nation, and I'm not advocating that we should take out and stone those who blaspheme the name of the Lord, not at all. But we do see that in our society, an acceptance more of a blatant disrespect and a blasphemy against the name of the Lord, don't we? What we hear today in public and what we hear accepted today, you didn't hear 50 years ago, 100 years ago. But all through the generations, what we have seen is more of acceptance has come out against those who speak against the nature and character of God, who blaspheme his name openly, who have a blatant disrespect for God. We see that more and more accepted in our society. And I believe that it is very, very sad. And it concerns me when we see that in our society. That that's the trend in which we are going. We were a nation at one time that we had a respect for the name of God, for, for you know Christian truth and for the scriptures. Now we're a nation that's gotten away from that. And so we see here that the Lord was saying, listen, I don't want this nation. You haven't even gone into the promised land. But now I want you to learn 
that there is to be a reverence for me and a respect for me. And I pray for us that we would always have a reverence and a deep respect for our God, that he is a holy God. And so here we saw that um, the, the stoning was done to this individual. In verse 17, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death, and whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. And so uh, we see more provision for law and order. We see, that again, the punishment that if you kill a man, that his life is to be taken as well. If you kill an animal, you shall make a good animal for animal. And we have seen in the book of Leviticus, as well as the book of Exodus, that specific guidelines that were given for this, wasn't there? That if you, you know, uh, accidentally kill somebody's ox, there is to be restitution plus, you know, more restitution added to that. And so God is giving them, again, these guidelines for when they go into the promised land, when they have land, when they have vineyards, when they have fields, when they have animals and oxen and animals uh, of sheep and things like that. So if there's an animal that's taken, that you kill an animal, there's restitution. But if you kill a man, then there is to be capital punishment. Now, one of the points I want to bring out is, is again, in our day and age in society, what we're seeing is, is that there are people that like to put animals on the same level as, as people. And here the Bible says, you kill a man, capital punishment. An animal is different. There's there to be restitution. And there was fair restitution, but the Lord doesn't put animals on the same level as man, you see. And again, our animals are important to us. I understand that. I have a dog and a cat. They think that, you know, they're like the kids, you know, spoiled and, and all of that. But they're a blessing to our family. And, and, and we enjoy our pets and we enjoy our animals. But they're not on the same level as my children. And we see a society today that is trying to do that. And, and the things that I hear is just absolutely insane. We saw this week, of course, that a, a chimpanzee ripped the face off a person, that a person was raising this chimpanzee. And I was watching an interview uh, today um, of this individual who was raising this chimp, and, and she was calling it her son, and she fed it steak and lobsters and ice cream and had clothes and all of this, and, and that's what she was doing. And I know that that can be a pet, and that can be something that they do personally i think as we see more of these people wanting to keep exotic animals in their homes that they're asking for trouble chimpanzees and orangutans grow big and they're strong and you cannot fight against them and instincts will kick in and they are known in the jungle they've documented and this isn't the first time this has happened with a chimp or orangutan attacking a human. They get in the jungles, and if they see a weak chimp or orangutan, they will tear that orangutan apart. And so that's the instincts that will kick in. Uh, I remember reading about 10 years ago, a guy in New York that had a pet lion. He thought he could have a lion in his you know, house, and he let it out to go to the bathroom, and it came in, and it jumped on him and bit his head off. And he was told by people, you can't have a pet lion around. So there are those who, who, who really take it to the extreme in, in that way, and then there are those who will try to put animals on the same level. Again, I, I love animals. I love our pets. Um, I'm one. I love to go up in the mountains and um, enjoy the wildlife. We, we enjoy it very much, our family. I graduated from natural resource management in Colorado State University. I love the land. I love the wildlife. I think we should be good stewards of those things, but I don't put animals on the same level as my children. 
And so when I hear how a neighborhood is having problems with coyotes and they want to do something about it, and then the groups come out, the animal activists come out and say, well, you know what, you shouldn't do anything, and so what if they attack the children? It's, it's almost like you know, that kind of attitude, don't do that. That you shouldn't do anything about it and protect the kids. And, you know, it's almost like it's the people's fault because they've invaded the habitat of the coyotes. And so that's the mentality we're seeing. And PETA comes along and says that we shouldn't eat any meat, that we all should be vegetarians. They come out with all these weird ads and advertisements that are just, it's absolutely insane. I know that I've told you this before. I'm a member of PETA. People for eating tasty animals. If you, <laughs> I know I'll get a letter on that one. So, if you want to be a vegetarian, that's great, and that's fine. But I'll tell you what, I ate beans and rice for two weeks, and when I came back, I was very thankful for the meat that I was able to eat. When I was eating beans and rice, I know that that's the way much of the world lives, and we received it with thanksgiving. But when I came back home and I was able to eat a hamburger, I received it with thanksgiving. (laughs) So let's keep a proper perspective and a biblical perspective on things. Again, we are to be good stewards. We are to, you know, the animals are a blessing to us and our pets, but they're not on the same level as people and our children. So an animal for an animal is what he says. Verse 19, if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. Again, these guidelines that are given, because my tendency is that if you poke my eye out, then I want to gouge your eyes out. So an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, you knock my tooth out, I want to you know, break all your teeth out. So the Lord is saying, here's some guidelines here that are given to you. And whoever kills, verse 21, an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. He shall have the same law for the stranger as for one from your own country. I am the Lord your God. And then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned them with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. In chapter 25, and the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, a solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. In verse 5, what grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath's produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male, your female servants, your hired men, and your stranger who dwells with you. For your livestock and the beasts that are in the land, all its produce shall be for food. And so now as we enter into chapter 25, it's dealing with special Sabbaths in for the Jubilee. Now we have seen reiterated over and over again to the children of Israel that you are to keep the Sabbath day, that as you work six days, you are to rest on the seventh day. Again, the Lord is preparing them for when they go into the promised land that you see in the book of Joshua, they will conquer the land, and then their lots are going to be divided up. And so when you go and work the land, when you plant your fields, your wheat and your barley, when you have your vineyards, when you have your orchards, this is what you're to do. You can plant it for six years, enjoy the produce, enjoy it, eat the food, you and your your female, male servants, your animals, 
Go ahead and eat away, but on that seventh year it shall be a Sabbath rest. You are to rest the land. There is to be no planting. There is to be no harvesting. The land is to rest. Now, there was a practical reason back in those days that the Lord did that, and that would be that it would the land be able to recover some of the nutrients and stuff. Now, today we live in an agricultural area, and farming is very much an important part of Greeley and Weld County. And we have the ability to be able to put nutrients back in the ground, but it wasn't that way back then. There wasn't irrigation that we have today. They depended on God to provide the rains and then for the land to rest. But one of the things that we're going to see here is that the Lord is going to reiterate to them that the land that I'm giving to you, it's my land. This is my land and I'm giving it to you. And this is the way that I want my land, again, to be worked. And so Lord is the one that wanted them to be good stewards of the land. And again, as we look at this, there was a practical reason. But when we move on through the chapter, we're going to see that there was a very important spiritual reason as well. One of the things that the Lord's saying is that for, again, the seventh year shall be the seventh year, or the Sabbath year. Rest the land. No planting, no produce on it. Now, can you imagine, back in these days, you know, they worked the land. That's what they did mostly before they went into the captivity. After the captivity, um, you know, there was, they became... Uh, when they were off in the Babylonian captivity, they became merchants and businessmen. But before that, they worked the land. They were in vineyards and they had orchards. They, they grew wheat and barley. That's what most of the people did. And so can you imagine, you know, being a servant as you worked on the farms, as you worked on uh, the fields and stuff like that, that you worked six years. You, in those six years, would work six days and get one day off. But now all of a sudden you get a whole year off. Sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? I think, wouldn't that be great? Six years and then I get a whole year off. Don't work the land. You're going to rest. It's going to be a Sabbath rest. So that's what they were to do. More coming concerning the Sabbath year. But then in verse 8, and then you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That fiftieth year shall be a Jubilee to you, and it shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. Verse 12, for it is the Jubilee. It shall be holy to you, and you shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything in your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase his price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish his price. For he sells to you according to the number of the years of the crops. In verse 17, therefore, you, you shall not oppress one another. But you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So here we have the law of the Jubilee. 
that is given here. And in the law of the Jubilee, after the seventh Sabbath, then in the 50th year, year 49 would be a Sabbath year, and then year 50th, the trumpet would be blown, and it would be proclaimed the Jubilee. Jubilee means joy. Trumpet used to proclaim, to proclaim that liberty, to proclaim, herald that that Jubilee, that year Jubilee, and then all of the debts would be wiped out. You'd be debt-free. Now, in this, what we see, because the Lord says the land is mine, and this is the way I want land transactions to go. You never really sold the land permanently. There's going to be some exceptions here that we'll see. But if you lost your land and, and you had to sell, it was more kind of a lease. And in the year of Jubilee, all debts were wiped out, and then that land would go back to the original owner. It would re- be redeemed back. So let's say that that you had land that you sold and lost in the 45th year, then according to the value of that, it would be leased to another in a very, very low value because the year of Jubilee was coming up. If it was after the year of Jubilee, then it would sell at a high price because you had nearly 50 years to go before it would revert back to the original owner. So the year of Jubilee, all debts were wiped out. It was two years in a row that you had a Sabbath. So you didn't work the land in that year of Jubilee, and, and you didn't work during that year. And usually in a lifespan of an average individual, one time in their life, they would have two years of rest. Wouldn't that be cool? That all of a sudden you had a year of Sabbath and a year of Jubilee that followed, and all your debts were wiped out? That would be kind of neat. And that's the way God set it up, because he said, you're not going to take advantage of one another. And and inheritance was very, very important back in this time. And so provision was made. And so here this year of Jubilee proclaimed. But for you and for me, we have something to proclaim, don't we? And that is Jubilee joy. That we have been redeemed. As the land would go back to the original owner, what a joy that must have been in that year of redemption that would take place. You know what? You and I have a message that we have been redeemed and now we belong back to the original owner. That is God who created us and made us. The little boy makes a boat and he's so proud of that boat he made and he's excited and he runs outside and he puts the boat in a little creek and it begins to rain and the creek swelled up quickly and, and the boat got away from him. And he's very saddened by that. And one day he's walking through his little town. He's walking by a pawn shop and he sees his boat up in the window and he says, that's my boat. So he runs in to talk to the shop owner, the pawn shop owner, and says, that's my boat. I want my boat back. And he said, no, you need to purchase it. You need to buy it if you want it back. So the boy went out and he mowed lawns and he washed cars and he got enough money to buy the boat. And he went into the pawn shop. He bought the boat. And as he was coming out, he was overheard saying, as he held that boat close to his chest, he said, you're mine, you're mine, you're twice mine. I made you, I created you. And now you're mine once again. And you see, that's what the Lord does with you and me. He created you and me. And now as we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who paid the price for us, he holds us close to himself and he says, you're mine, you're mine, you're twice mine. I made you, I created you, and now I've redeemed you with my precious blood. So all debts would be wiped out. A year of jubilee. So wonder it was a year of joy to the people. This was given to them. 
And so verse 18, You shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you shall dwell in the land safely. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and I will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in. You shall eat of the old harvest. Now going through this, you might think, well, what are they going to do in that seventh year? What are they going to do in the year of Jubilee? Uh, How are they going to be able to eat? They're not producing anything in the land. And the Lord says, listen, if you keep my word and you keep my promise and my statutes, you're going to see that I'm going to provide for you. You're going to have food for six years, and the sixth year is going to be such an abundance, it's going to carry you to the ninth year. That'll take care of the Sabbath years. That'll take care of the Sabbath and the Jubilee. And I promise to do this for you. So there was not only a practical reason in resting the land, but there was a very important spiritual reason for them to do that. And that was that the Lord not only wanted them to trust in him, but to rest in him in these Sabbaths. The Sabbath was rest. And Lord, not just a practical rest where we stop work, but a rest in you spiritually where we're trusting in you that you're going to come through and your promises are true and you're going to provide for us as we do what you tell us to do. And that's a very important principle for you and for me. Sometimes the Lord will tell us to do something and we're going, how is this going to work out practically, Lord? And the Lord is saying, I want you to trust in me and then I want you to rest in me. That I am going to come through and I'm going to provide and I'm going to bless. I mean, think about this. Here's what happened. The Lord says, a Sabbath year, whoa. A Jubilee year, even better. As you look at the history of the children of Israel, there's no record they kept the Sabbath year. We know for 490 years they didn't. For 490 years, when right before they went into the Babylonian captivity, in Second Chronicles chapter 36, the Lord says, I'm going to get my Sabbath back because you didn't keep the Sabbath. So 70 years total, you're going to go into captivity and the land's going to get its rest. We're going to see next week when we finish Leviticus that the Lord is going to be speaking to them. He's going to be giving the blessing and the cursings. And if you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen. The land's going to dry up. And then when you go off into captivity, the land's going to get its rest. It's going to get its Sabbath. And that's what happened. For 490 years, they did not keep the Sabbath year. And so the Lord says, I'm going to get that 70 years back and you're going to go off into captivity for 70 years and the land is going to rest. You see, for you and for me, we got choices to make. I mean, I look at this and I think that's a pretty good deal. A year off every seven years, you know, year of jubilee or disobey God and go off into captivity. So what do we do? So oftentimes in our lives, we say instead of trusting in you and resting in you and experiencing that life abundantly, I'm going to go and do my own thing. And I'm going to go my own way. And I'm going to pursue this thing. And then we end up being captive to it. Rather than resting in the Lord and trusting in Him and what He has for us. And that's what happened to them. And I pray it doesn't happen with us. And so as we finish here quickly, verse 23, the redemption of property. 
And the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for your strangers and sojourners with me. And so again, the land was not to be sold permanently. The land is mine, the Lord says. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and he has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man who he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee, and then in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. And so we see here the role that what is called the kinsman redeemer, the goel in the Hebrew. He was the nearest relative. We see in the book of Ruth that this is being worked out, this redemption of land. And we saw it with, with Ruth and with Boaz as the nearest relative did not want to redeem uh, the land and Ruth that came with the land, but it would be Boaz that would redeem it. Now, the kinsman redeemer, if he couldn't buy out the brother out of debt, then the land would return to the debtor in the year of Jubilee. All debts were wiped out again. And then verse 29, some additional guidelines given. If a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year, he may redeem it. But if it's not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. So if you lived in a city that was walled, you had a house and you sold it, you had one year to redeem it back, to buy it back. If you could not redeem it back, then you lost it permanently. Even in the year of Jubilee, you would not get it back. However, verse 31, we see that the houses of villages would have no wall around them, shall be counted as the fields of the country. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in a Jubilee. In other words, that the house was out in the country, it came with the land. So if you lost the land, you lost the house. If you could redeem the land back, then you could redeem the house back and it would go back in the year of Jubilee. Verse 32, Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses of the cities of their possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. In other words, the Levites, the Lord said, you're my inheritance. When you go in the book of Joshua, they didn't receive a plot of land, a section of land, but what they received was cities that they lived in. So they lived in these houses and the Lord said, you're my inheritance. They would serve in the tabernacle. And so the Lord has some special um, uh, ex, you know, um, guidelines for them that they could redeem their homes back in the cities. In verse 33, and if a man purchases a house from the Levites, the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the Jubilee for the houses in the city of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold for it is their perpetual possession. In verse 35, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like the stranger or the sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you to the land of Canaan to be your God. Isn't it an amazing God's system? He says, you lend money out, you don't charge interest if your brother has need. Can you imagine if we did that in our nation? I mean, I think about the mess that we are in because of the lending practices and the greed and all of this that has taken place. So we passed a stimulus bill. I know we have to do something. 
And I look at that stimulus bill, and $353 million are allocated to help prevent sexually transmitted diseases. Much of that is going to be providing condoms for those in the public school and Planned Parenthood. $50 million is going to go into research uh, of trying to study carbon emissions in the uh, rural areas. Things like that, if you really get to studying. What does that have to do with economic stimulus? I don't know. Now we're talking another $75 billion to help those. And I know there are people who need help. I'm not saying that we shouldn't help them. But what I am saying is when we get away from what God says for us and, 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 and when greed takes over or if we try to take advantage of people, it comes back and it bites us. And the Lord set up a system of helping people. And, and, and one of the things that we do here in the church is when we help people, it's not alone. It's to help people. And I know in society it's different in, in, in all of this. I'm not trying to debate whether you should charge interest, a bank, or whatever. But I'm saying this for you and I as Christians. These are things for us to think about if we lend money or if we want to help somebody out or whatever it may be that we do it in a way that honors the Lord, okay? And that's what we want to do. So here we see this lending to the poor and then the law concerning slavery. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. In other words, if you run into debt, you owe somebody money, you would go work for him, but you wouldn't be a slave. And a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and you shall serve until the year of Jubilee. Then all the slaves would be set free and the servants would be set free because their debt would be wiped out, wouldn't it? And then he shall depart from you and he and his children with him and shall return to his own family, he shall return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Verse 43, you shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. In other words, you don't work him to death. You're to treat him right. And God, one of the principles that we see in the scripture, that God loves a hard worker. He desires for us, I believe as Christians, to be the hardest workers that we can be. But how we treat others, we don't just run somebody under the ground and mistreat them, is what the Lord is saying. Work them to death. You don't don't work him with rigor, that is, with severity. Uh, but you're to fear the Lord your God. You see, that happened to them in Egypt. They were under the taskmaster's whip and beaten and all of this. And as for your male and female slaves, verse 44, whom you have, from the nations that are around you, from them you shall buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you shall buy the children of, of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And so what we see here, uh, again, verse 46, you shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They may be your permanent slaves, but regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. And so here are the guidelines. Um, if a brother is down and out and uh, he owes you, uh, he's a hired servant, uh, but not a slave. You don't take him as a slave. And then these guidelines that are given, what happens when the Jubilee comes in verses 47 through 55. I'm going to let you read the rest of that when you go home tonight before you go to bed. That'll be your homework. But the law of redeeming a Hebrew slave from a foreigner is given there. But I want to close with this. We know that there are four requirements to be that kinsman redeemer. If you redeem lamb or somebody back uh, from being a servant, whatever it might be, or slave. And we know that, first of all, they had to be a blood relative. Second of all, they had to be free of debt. 
if you were to redeem somebody, you couldn't be in debt yourself. Thirdly, you had to have the price of the redemption. And then fourthly, the Redeemer was had to do it willingly. And Jesus did all four for us, didn't he? He came and he became our brother, if you would. He became a man, God in the person of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and became a man, became a servant, and was obedient to death. He was free of death. See, you and I, we all are under the wages of sin and debt to sin, but not Jesus. He lived a perfect life. So he is free of that because he was sinless. And he's the one that could had the price to pay for the redemption because as Peter writes in his epistle, all the gold and silver in the world could not redeem you back, but only the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And Jesus did it willingly, didn't he? And he did it freely because he loves you and he's redeemed you. So honor him with your life. Live for him. Enjoy him. Because not only is He giving you life, but life abundantly. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. That really is my prayer for all of us here tonight. That we would just fully understand what Jesus has done for us. I don't think we'll fully understand it. We'll spend all eternity just marveling in His grace, the Scripture says. But we would just come to more of an understanding of Your love and grace for me, Lord. It causes me to want to be devoted to You and to love You more and to serve You And Lord, to honor you and to walk in that holiness that you desire for me to. And so, Father, we thank you.